And those of you that remain here in the auditorium or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing our series in this book, looking at the surpassing worth of what Christ is and is doing. And we come now to this um, rather famous passage that we'll take a few weeks to look at, um, but this morning we'll be looking at the first five verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray that God would teach us this morning. Lord Almighty, if you don't teach us from your word, then this will be a clattering symbol, meaningless gibberish to us. We might understand the words, but we will have no ability to live them out if you do not work. So send your Spirit to give us understanding, to equip us, O Lord, that this might not just to be a time where we hear the word, Lord, and forget immediately what it means. That this might be a time, Lord, where we hear you and go forth changed by your word to live for your glory together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So object lessons are... Sort of the the bread and butter of children's ministry or youth ministry or even pulpit ministry from time to time. And there are some really incredible object lessons. An object lesson is where you take an object or demonstrates a point in in the hopes that it is uh, seared on the memories of those in attendance. Uh, You might even remember when TJ was ordained, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I don't remember how long ago it was. Then his dad came and preached the sermon and brought up four people and gave them an object lesson on what 2 Timothy 2 2 meant. I still remember it. Of course, there are also bad object lessons, ones that either you don't remember or don't make the point. I did a summer internship when I was in college as a, with my youth pastor to, to work with the middle schoolers And I would lead them in devotions all summer, and I tried to work in lots of object lessons to engage their interest. And one time, because we had this, this was unique to our area, we had this huge wall screen and a projector. This is, I'm dating myself saying that this was unusual. We had this projector that you could project things on a whole wall. 
And so I hooked up my Nintendo Entertainment System. That's the original Switch. And, and, and had us compete with one another to try to get the, the highest score in uh, Super Mario Brothers, which is a video game. The best video game. And we had a lot of fun with that. And the whole point was, like, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't earn enough points to break the record. You can't earn enough points to get into heaven. You need grace and whatnot. And I thought that was a really powerful and effective lesson, except they were more fascinated with playing Super Mario Brothers on an entire wall. That's all they thought about, all they talked about, how awesome that was, and who got the highest score. They were more concerned about getting the highest score than realizing that the highest score doesn't matter. Object lessons. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. The church, this church, Every particular church that calls on the name of Christ is God's object lesson to the world, illustrating his plan to redeem and restore all things in Christ. When you look at the church, when you think about the church, even ours, Maybe you're wondering, could God have picked a better object lesson? In a church that is so prone to strife, to individuals snubbing one another, to people sinning and causing harm and hurt to those around them. It's just the the stresses of drumming up more volunteers for the latest thing and everybody competing for their own programs and their own interests and their own ministry priorities. Church splits, church strife. Is this the best illustration for God's redemptive power in Christ? And yet... Despite any critique or criticism you might offer the Lord about his selection, we remain, as the church, an object lesson to the world in our life together. It is to be a picture of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. How? Why? We're going to ask four questions this morning and try to seek answers to them. First, what what is God doing? What, What is he even trying to do in using the church as an object lesson for this? What's the goal in all of that? Where does that work of being an illustration of the gospel actually take place? And how is any of it even possible? What's God doing? What's the goal? Where does it take place? How is it possible? Let's see if we can answer these questions this morning. So what is God doing? Why would he choose such a broken and fractured and weak and frail institution 
to be his picture to the world of his glory and his grace. The church, we, we, we struggle with this. And so we try to, to, to drum up motivation and energy to put our best foot forward, to put our best face forward. And so we, we try to, to promote good new programs. We try to connect and serve and, and, and raise money for, for different things. And, and we work really hard trying to be good, good people good organization. And in so doing, we are looking for motivation, energy, in all the wrong places. There's a saying in ministry. I've said it here before. You've heard me say it. You win people to what you win them with. And so if, if the thing that is drawing people in is an exciting program when the excitement goes away for whatever reason, they'll go somewhere else where they can find that excitement afresh. Paul doesn't, he doesn't point the Philippian church to their programs. He doesn't point them really to themselves at all. He says, examine yourselves. If you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, And listen to what I'm saying and live out your life together this way. His appeal isn't to their programming, isn't to their size, isn't to their budget, isn't to who's in charge or who the leadership is or ought to be. His appeal is to what God is doing in their midst And how great and mighty and powerful and astounding must God's grace be that Paul can say, if you've had any taste of it, you can live this out. If you had any encouragement in Christ, you'll know what it means then to be an encouragement to others. If you've had any comfort from his love, you will overflow with love to others. So great and so mighty is his love for you, you won't be able to hold it in. If you have had any encounter with his Holy Spirit, any participation in him, you will know what it means that you are united together in the Holy Spirit of Christ before the very throne of God. If you've had any affection for one another, any sympathy shown you because someone else in Christ has overflowed to you with that kindness, you will know what it means to overflow with that affection and sympathy to others. Paul reminds the Philippian church and he reminds us that what God is doing is exalting himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, his love, his power, his purpose, his grace. 
And our community ought to be an illustration of his transforming power, of his abundant love, of his never-ending grace that is new every morning. It's not a place where we gather because we have our acts together. It's not a place where we can unite with one another because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. It's a place where we can come broken, weak, frail, and find comfort, affection, sympathy, because it's a place where the grace and love and majesty of Christ is lifted up, not ourselves. We struggle sometimes to live life together. To be a a place where there is affection and sympathy. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. But one of the biggest, if not the biggest, is perhaps... When we struggle to connect, when we struggle to to deal with the difficulties that come with being a community, when we struggle with the brokenness and the weakness and the frailty that is constantly assailing us in this life, perhaps the reason we struggle to come together in unity is because we are looking for goodness. We are looking for comfort. We are looking for encouragement in things that are not Jesus. We have tasted of money and we think that's all the good we need. We have tasted of reputation and success and think that will be enough. We've tasted of living vicariously through our children and think, I can be satisfied in this. And the Lord tells us again and again, oh, taste and see that the Lord alone is good. And you will find when you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any any participation with the Spirit, it will change you because you've encountered the living God himself. And if it changes you, it will change us. What is God doing? He's exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, not us. So what's the point? What's he trying to accomplish? What's the goal of all of this? Sometimes the church forgets her place in God's purposes. Like sometimes we start to think, because we've been to a few Bible studies or heard a few sermons or read a few books, that we've arrived and we've done all the work that's necessary. For us to be a good church. 
You know, when I'm traveling somewhere, whether I'm going to visit somebody or coming back home, I, I don't ever think that I've arrived until I've arrived. And by that, I don't mean when I've pulled into the neighborhood. Right? Some of you, like when you get off the interstate in, in the town, you're texting, we're here, or made it safe, or, or when you get into the, the neighborhood, you're on the street, or even when you're in the driveway, we're here, or, or when you're unloading, oh, we're so glad to be. I don't feel like I've arrived until I am unpacked and in my pajamas, sitting down, done. The trip is over. I've arrived. Paul says, if you've had any encounter with the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, complete my joy in this way. Like th- This is how you will know when you've done everything you possibly can to give me all the joy that I could ever have. Be like Jesus. This is what he means. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, he means complete my joy by being like Jesus. That's the goal. And we will never arrive at that goal, this side of glory. There will always be something for you to confront in your heart, something for us to confront in our midst. There will always be room for us to grow. But God is growing us in this single purpose. By being of the same mind, he's not talking about us being clones where we all talk the same, dress the same, root for the same football teams, as nice as that might be for some of you. No, he's growing us in unity in Christ. That's what that means to be of the same mind. To have the same love is to be those who have received the love of God and are more and more learning how to reciprocate that love to God and to one another so that we have the same love for one another, not our own weak, feeble, frail love, but the very love of Christ that is changing us more and more in his likeness and image, that we would have that love for one another. That we would be in one accord, uh, you could almost translate this, of one soul. That we would be so connected to Christ and to one another in him that we are, are one. That the dividing walls of hostility, all of the things that from the little irritations to the utter and wicked prejudices that would divide us, that those will be fully and completely torn down in Christ. That we would be growing so united in him that nothing stands between us. And then he uses this word again, of one mind, united in purpose and understanding That we would see that where Christ is calling us to go, that's where we will go. What Christ is calling us to do, that is what we will do. What Christ is calling us to think, that is what we will think. Together. It won't be about what I want or what you want. We together will go before the face of Christ and seek what he wants for us, in us, through us. And as long as we live this side of the veil, we have room to grow in becoming more and more like Christ.
But what's interesting here is that discipleship, and that's what it is. It's inseparable from people and place. Discipleship and growth in Christ is inseparable from people and place. Look, these are hard times that we have gone through and are continuing to go through with a pandemic that has put many people's lives in real jeopardy. And there was a time where we couldn't even meet face to face. And even now the recommendations are for for masks. Like this is a real and an extraordinary time. But if we retreat into that virtual reality world, where we just listen to podcasts or watch on a screen and don't live a life together, We're trading the substance of growth in Christ-likeness for an imitation. Now look, I'm not saying if you're watching on the live stream right now, I'm not trying to guilt you, right? There are legitimate good reasons. That's why we have the live stream, especially in this day and time. But if you have isolated yourself, if you have drawn back, if you are not seeking opportunity to connect with people in Christ, your growth in him is stunted. Full stop. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we have sought opportunities, even in the worst of the pandemic, to to have that connection with the one-on-one discipleship program, with the small groups, with gathering and in-person worship, even when it meant we had to have two services and we're running our volunteers ragged. One of the reasons we've put this in place is because do you realize that the second leading cause of death for people 18 to 34 years old is suicide? For the next age bracket up, it's the fourth. And overall in our country, it's in the top ten. The more that we seek validation, fulfillment, satisfaction, friendship in electrons and screens, the more we become disconnected from who we are made to be in the very image of God those who have fellowship with God and one another. The goal that God has in the church is to bring us together and mold us and shape us in the very likeness and image of Christ as a family, as members of God's own household. And we need one another because that's how we're made. It's the goal is that we would be united in Christ. So where does all this work take place? You might be sitting there thinking, 
My spouse really needs to hear this sermon. My children. I've got somebody I'm going to email it to. We do this a lot. (laughs) We we hear things and we start thinking about all the people that really, really need to hear this. Ever been on an airplane? I don't remember the last time I was on an airplane now. But if you've ever been on an airplane, you've done the... They've done the speech, the oxygen masks come down, and what do they tell you? Don't try to help the person next to you until you get the oxygen mask on yourself because you can't help anybody if you're passed out. And what Paul says here is, let this be true among you. Let each of you strive for this. You cannot... Help the church. You cannot live for Christ if Christ does not live in you. And what you need more than anything is not to be thinking about all the other people that need to change. Paul brings it back to each person. What is Christ doing in you to make the way you live in the church and in your community different? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the mind you need to have among yourselves. It starts in your heart. It's about your humility. It's about how you prioritize your interests and the things that you really want to see done, and learning to take a step back and say, but what would be good for those around me? How can I help them? This is not something we can do on our own. We are, in our natural state, after the fall, Sinful and selfish people. And it is the easiest thing for us to do to think about our own interests. Our first father blamed everybody else but himself. This woman you gave me, she made me sin. We we want to protect ourselves and justify ourselves. That is what comes naturally and easily to us. But Paul is saying here that when you have tasted of the goodness and the grace and the love of Christ... It brings you to the end of yourself. Because you see how the Lord of the glory who made you, you see just how far he came to get you. To save you. To work healing in you. You can't stand in awe of that grace. And beat other people down around you so you can get what you want. Not and be consistent. This is the, the time when the pastor can, can just dive in and like guilt trip you all. But, but hear me well. That's the last thing I'm trying to do. What we need if we are to 
to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, if we are to have true humility, if we are to to not just take care of our own interests, there are things you have to take care of, but also in that, take care of the interests of others. If you're going to do that, you have got to have the very power of Christ at work in you. Where does that work take place? It takes place in your heart. And in your life. How's it even possible? Well, I mean, one way it's possible is to do the guilt trip thing. You can see who's signed up on the last 12 sign-up sheets and compare it to the role and start emailing all of you that haven't signed up. Why haven't you signed up? Guilt you could berate you, could try to challenge you, and, and, and just say, like, you're not being a good person, a good church member. That's not what Christ does for us. That's not how change comes. I love following the science of neuroscience. I mean, it has a lot of practical application for my chosen career field and vocation, but uh, also I'm just a nerd, and I like that kind of stuff. So I listen to podcasts and I read books. And it's interesting to me how they continually discover more and more things. And they can't explain stuff. Right? They can't. There are some things they just don't know. And I'm not trying to say that we've understood the brain completely 100%, but... It's interesting some of the things they are discovering and how they just confirm, in some ways, like just common sense. If you've ever lived in this world, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Like, like why is it so hard to break bad habits? Because the more you do, the more you live a certain way, the more your neural pathways are shaped a certain way, and you don't just wake up one morning and you're like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to live completely differently. Your, your whole brain is like, no, we're going to go do this. The default is always easier. And if you want to change those habits, you have to think in terms of that repetitive, consistent shaping of your life because ultimately what you're doing is reshaping neural pathways to form new habits. And I know you biologists and scientists out there are going to critique my summary of this, but this is I'm just trying to get the lay the lay version of this out there. I won't be on Radio Lab anytime soon. But you want to form new habits. Yeah, quitting cold turkey, willpower, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Why does it never work? It doesn't work because you've spent months, if not years, gearing your brain to do it a different way. How wonderful are we the way God has made us? That we can be shaped and formed with with such simple things like prayer, daily scripture reading, fellowship together. How amazing is it that the, the way God even designed us is that all of these things that he's given us, he didn't give them to us so that he could berate us and guilt us 
Have you read your Bible today? Have you prayed today? But like, these are ways for you to encounter me and to have your mind shaped more and more to be like mine so that you can have the mind of Christ. This is why our church has, our session has put into place these things, the prayer time, Sunday mornings. This is why we are encouraging the one-to-one discipleship groups and small groups. This is why we are having men's fellowships and women's fellowships. This is why we have worship because we understand that the, the reason God has called us not to forsake meeting together isn't just because he wants to, to drop an anvil on our heads if we get it wrong. It's because in those liturgies, in those habits, in those things, he is shaping us by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit to be more and more like Jesus. And those things don't happen by accident. Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves. There is work and there is effort involved. Have Have this, lean into this, embrace this, grasp this, have this mind. Do these things, think this way, pursue this goal. But not because you've got to earn something, not because God is keeping shame and guilt upon you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus, you already have it. He has given it to you. Everything that you need to grow in him, he provides. And our efforts are a response to his love and his grace because we have indeed tasted and found that God is good. Do you have eyes to see? what God is doing around you. In our midst, are you there hearing the prayer requests go up? Are you there meeting with another person just to read the Bible and pray together and just live life together? Are you there to see the power of God at work among us, shaping and conforming our minds and our lives to be like that of Jesus? Does that energize you and motivate you to step more into the ways that he is leading to stand in awe of what he is able to do. To to shout with the the woman of the world, just come and see. See this God who is doing such great things. Look. Life together in Christ is not complicated. But it is hard. The world, the flesh, and the devil will not stand idly by while we are conformed to the likeness and image of the very Son of God. But it's not complicated. 
And God himself has given us everything that we need to step out in faith and live in him together. To be vulnerable with one another, to confess to one another, to bear one another's burdens, to live life together truly. You know, when we have days like this in Virginia, which is one of the reasons I love being in Virginia, you have all the seasons. And you wake up on a morning like this where it's like, whoa, it's 50 degrees outside. It might even be 30 degrees outside. I, I just want to stay in the, under the covers. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to go anywhere. I want somebody to bring me a hot cup of coffee. And I'm just going to stay there for the rest of the day. But there's something about those days that start out so cold. Later on, it's going to be like 60 and gorgeous. Because the sun is going to be out there, still doing its work, maybe not getting it up to 70, maybe barely crossing over that 60 threshold, but it's going to be a cool, crisp day, great day for a walk, a great day for a picnic, a great day that if you stay in bed, you'll never see. But some of you know what the sun is capable of doing on a fall day in Virginia. So you get out of bed, and you get ready, and you get up, and you get moving, and when that moment comes, when it is glorious, you step out into it and enjoy the fullness of the day and all its goodness. What Paul is saying is that we also have an opportunity to be an object lesson to the world, not of what it means to be perfect, but of what it means to step out in faith and live life together knowing that our God is so good and so powerful and so gracious that he can indeed transform us as individuals and as a community into his very likeness and image. Go out and be what you already are in Christ. Go out and have the mind that's yours in the Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, to do this very thing. It's too much for us. We need you. We need you to show us your glory. We need you to be at work. We need your spirit to come with power and apply these things to our lives, not just now, but when it's hard. When people say things that, that are hurtful to us, when we do things that we are ashamed of, when it seems that all hope of community is lost, Lord, give us faith in what you are doing, that we might step out, live together in you, that you might be exalted in our community, that we might be a church that is an object lesson of how great you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.